Please open your scriptures to Psalm 38. Michael Hopf wrote a post-apocalyptic novel in which he summed up a pervasive cyclical vision in history. He said this, Hard times create strong men. Strong men create good times. Good times create weak men. And weak men create hard times. Stefan Arneo wrote several books. One of his books was based upon Hopf's statement In his book, Hard Times Create Strong Men, Arneo said this, quote, too many people would rather be popular than discuss the truth. We live in a world today where it is blasphemous, racist, sexist, homophobic, or any other number of labels to identify real problems in our Western world. For the most part, I believe our political parties, all of them, And our media, most of it, are like bratty kids who are used to getting their own way. And instead of being disciplined like they should be, they are rewarded with attention and large salaries. Our country has an abundance of real problems. It seems like a deep and dark sickness that is hidden behind personal hurts and social agendas. And even in... And even in some of these, there's usually always a kernel of truth. But aside from that kernel, what does your worldview say is the problem? Because it is a problem when people use agendas to sort of champion against hurt and abuse. But within doing so, they create more what? More hurt and more abuse. What does your worldview say about the chaos in our world? Not what the media says, not what the far right says, not what the far left says. What does your philosophical finger point to as the problem? And at its most basic level, which is actually quite complex and very unpopular, the accurate answer is this. Sin. That's the problem. That's the problem outside This building, and that's the problem inside this building because it is a problem inside of our own hearts. And Psalm 38 identifies this problem and highlights, and I want you to hear this, uh, the spiritual damage that sin causes, physical damage, relational damage. Right? Sin is sort of compounded when it creeps into our life or comes out of our heart. Really quick, just by way of a definition, without turning this into a systematic theology lesson, um, but but what? How do you define sin? What would you say sin is if you had to sort of pinpoint it today in our class during our equipping electives? We're going to define hopefully clearly what conscience is. How do you define sin? Well, how do you, how would you define a car door? Right? You you look at it, you'd see that it's part of something bigger, and you know, and and how do people use it? Right. You could sum it up. Well, how is the word used both in Hebrew and Greek? The word used for sin means to miss or to fail to hit the mark. It's really what Romans 3.23 is saying. All fall short like an arrow aimed at a target. It always falls short of the glory of God. 
Greg Gilbert in his book, What is the Gospel, actually says there, there's, a, there's a further meaning of sin. And it's as though we have pulled the arrow back and we're aiming at the target. And we actually turn around and take a shot at the king on the throne. It's also an idea of our, our rebellion as sin. Theologian Louis Burkhoff defines sin as this, quote, lack of conformity to the moral law of God, either in act, disposition or state. The act of sin, and really it's, it's, a, it's an important triple definition. The act of sin describes any transgression of breaking God's law. It's what John will say in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. And then he gives this definition. Sin is lawlessness. And then the act comes from a disposition, meaning the determination of our will. For example, Romans 7, verse 8, the Apostle Paul says this. Sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. But where did that come from? And that's where Burkhoff is going to use the word state. And, it, and it, what that emphasizes is a fallen person's condition. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty two. For as in Adam, all die. See, you had no choice about that. But here's, here's what Jesus will teach in Luke 6, that, that we are sinners both by nature and choice. By Adam's nature inherited, but by our own choice as well. Jesus said this, the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. In Psalm 38, what you're going to find the psalmist confess is that the suffering he is enduring, the suffering that God introduced into his life is not untethered to his own sinful choices. So let's look at this. Let's first look at the pain of sin. We're not going to reread it, but I do want you to reread the first two arrows because this is where he begins and sort of sets the platform. In the pain of sin, there are, there are three parts, really. And the first is the weight of sin. And I think we all know, right, we're all old enough in here as I look around to know what the weight of sin feels like. Listen to how David describes it. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath, for your arrows have sunk into me and your hand has come down on me. The image here is more of a classroom rather than a courtroom. God is dealing with, with his child. It's more a picture of a teacher rather than a judge, or as the writer of Hebrews describes it, as a father to a son. This passage became very clear to me after a motorcycle accident when I was 21 years old. And I knew at that moment it was the loving hand of God heavy upon me. Hebrews says this, Hebrews 12, verses 6 to 8, for the Lord, this is the encouragement, are you ready? For the Lord disciplines those whom he what? Whom he loves. That's the picture. And he punishes each one he accepts as his child. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. And then he brings up this idea which should startle some people. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. In the psalmist's experience, God, so this is his human experience. Look at how God is acting. Look at verse 1, out of his anger. Look at verse 1, out of his wrath. And look at verse 3, out of his indignation. 
These three terms do not describe the attitude of God towards his child. Okay, so don't confuse that. What it does do is it describes his displeasure with what? With the psalmist's sin. And, and David knows that, and so he says, you know, I'm feeling like you are angry and you're, and you're, you're responding out of indignation. Well, maybe we'd explain it this way. Have you ever had a class with a stern and serious teacher? And on the first day, I mean, you, you, pick, you pick right up on it. I had an old German teacher for philosophy of education, and the, in the first five minutes I thought, this is going to be a long haul. I mean, this guy is so stern. I mean, if you yawned, he would say, thank you for showing me the back of your throat. You know, and he just called people out. Have you ever had a teacher like that? Maybe not necessarily exactly like that, but a stern, serious teacher. But you know what happened in that class? He became one of my two favorite professors. And I learned more from him because of the content, his seriousness and the content of his message. My other favorite teacher was a serious-minded Presbyterian theologian. And he also was fierce. But that's when I learned Minor Prophets. And that's when I learned Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And that's when I learned wisdom literature under him. Do you know at times God is a firm, stern, serious teacher? To the point where you will be like, your arrows have pierced me. Your hand is heavy on me. Is God's instructive hand heavy upon you right now? Do you feel the weight, if you would, of his curriculum? Are you in class going, this is too much. This is, this is heavy. The reference to arrows, by the way, should not be taken as a military attack. God doesn't do that to his children. But rather, it's the pain that the arrows inflict. David is feeling something. Emotionally, he's feeling something. Relationally, he's feeling it physically. And in both, in either case, these arrows, the pain and the anger, he understands it as God's discipline. So we might not use arrows, right? How would we use? What statements might we say this morning? When God's hand is heavy on us, how would you say this? I'm just so weary. I'm the kind of tired that sleep doesn't make go away. That doesn't always mean it's the hand of God or chastening. Or we might say, I'm just sick and tired of being sick and tired. And maybe that is God's heavy hand upon you. Or I'm jaded, or I'm cynical, or I'm without feeling, or I'm so anxious that I don't know what to do with it. Those are not always the result of sin, but it could be. And what we're going to find out is when God's hand is heavy upon you, it is conspicuous. You don't have to guess about it. Look at verse 3. Because when God's hand is heavy, and this is how you'll recognize it, it is all-consuming. There is no soundness, verse 3. Look at verse 3 again. No health. Look at verse 4. It's gone over my head. The reference to like a flood of pain. Verse 4. Like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. And the reason it's that way, look at verse 3, is because of his sin. Verse 4, because of his iniquities. See, that's the unpopular message. That's the problem that he is addressing. One theologian, Craigie, suggested that we don't have anything historically to tether this to in David's life, right? Psalm 32, Psalm 51, uh, very clearly 
a turning from his double sin uh, with Bathsheba and Uriah. Uh, but this one, we don't really have a historical account to sort of sink it into. And some of his descriptions actually sound gangrenous in the sense of his flesh is rotting. And one theologian suggested, because it's wisdom literature, he said, this, this very well could represent a lifetime of disease in the person of the poet. So he's putting forward this poetic piece so that every one of us at some point in life can identify with his words. So you have first sort of this weight of sin. Look at secondly, look at the physical suffering of it. Look at verse five. My wounds stink and fester. And that in part is what introduces the distancing of his friends to him in verse 11. Look down at verse 9. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing. Look at verse 10. My heart, my strength, the light of my eyes. And that's why we're going to say God's corrective hand is without doubt when it enters in. There have been other times I've gone through serious accidents, not like the motorcycle accident, where it wasn't clear whether that was God's chastening hand or not. It was painful. It was excruciating. But there was no direct connection to that and sin, like when I lost control of a motorcycle doing, I had it slowed down to 95 miles an hour. And as soon as I hit and couldn't breathe and thought I would die, immediately in my mind, I knew that was from the loving hand of God. So we're not trying to create a chastening moment for you, but what we are trying to show you is that sin creates this physical and emotional and relational suffering. Look at the relational aspects of suffering. Look at verse 11. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand far off. But also, look at verse 12. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. So you have his friends pulling away from him. You actually have his enemies moving towards him. You know what suffering allows you to see? It allows you to see who your true friends are. Everybody wants to be around a popular and healthy and strong leader. But when that leader suffers or is rejected... You will know who your true friends are in that moment. This even happened to Christ. Not the result of sin, but at the end of, his, but at the end of John chapter 6, it said all the people turned away from following Him. And Jesus even looked at His own twelve men, hand-chosen men, and He said, well, you also go away. And thankfully, Peter says what? To whom shall we go, Lord? For you have the words of eternal life. See, everybody wants to be around a popular leader who can give gifts and is healthy. But when that leader suffers like David is here, the friends stand aloof and the enemies moved in. David hints that this attack by his enemies in verse 20 is slander. And this, this beautiful picture of that he's a deaf man, he doesn't hear their insults, and a mute man. How would you interpret that? Well, his suffering is so intense that he probably is unable to respond. Or perhaps what we're going to see here in just a second as we learn how to respond to sin, he chooses not to respond because he is waiting on God through his suffering. So in light of all that reality, the pain, the weight, the, the physical, the relational, the spiritual dimension of suffering for sin, how do we respond? And this is, where the, this is really where Psalm 38 moves 
How do we respond to sin? Look at verse 15. But for you, O Lord, do I what? I wait. The first way to respond is to wait on the Lord. There is a silence about this, a stillness. An allowing of God's voice to become louder than all the other noises in the world, the noises in your heart and in your mind. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord my God, who will answer. So this suffering has caused David to look somewhere. And he is looking not horizontal, not even, not even at the friends or the enemies. He is looking up again. You know, sometimes that's what God does in response to our sinful choices. He creates a crushing, if you would, so that we look back to Him. Not only do we wait for the Lord, verses 15 to 17, we confess our iniquity, verses 18 to 20. Look at verse 18. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. And he brings up his foes again, how, how they're vigorous, and he's still praying that God would protect him through that. But here's how we can respond to sin. We can resist it, God's conviction. We can become emboldened. Or we can blame everyone else for our failure. What David is doing throughout this psalm is to humbly confess his ownership in what's happening. Look at verse 3. Look at verse 3. He says this, and, and it's sprinkled throughout the entire psalm. He is suffering. Why, verse 3? Because of my, what's the word? Because of my sin. Look at verse 4. My iniquities have gone over my head. Look at verse 5. Because of my foolishness. And look at verse 18. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. All these words coupled together show David in the middle of his suffering, looking back to God, saying, I'm waiting on you and I'm taking ownership for what I've done. It's like what Job said in Job 13, verse 15. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. God allows suffering and sickness and pain for a good reason, though we might not always know what the good reason is. Do you know Job never found out? Unlike Psalm 38, Job, Job's suffering was not tethered to a clear personal sin. He may have sinned in the middle of his suffering, but it's not what caused it on the front end. And, and do you, know, you remember how God answers Job in the middle of his suffering? He gives him like this really long quiz that Job can't answer. Where were you, Job, when I created? Or Job, do you know where I store the wind and the lightning? Or Job, do you know where the frost comes from? And, and Job, you can almost picture him. He's just got to put his head down. And Job responds this way in Job 42. In the middle of this suffering, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Whether sin or no sin, the suffering points you somewhere. To you, O Lord, will I wait. Job says, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract. And he confesses too. Listen to what he says. And I repent in dust and ashes. From the clarity of the revelation you just gave, I am turning a different direction. So we wait patiently on God. We confess our sin. And then look at verses 21 to 22. We ask God to draw near. Because that's what we're really suffering. 
Yes, there's the physical aspects. He goes through in great detail and he talks about the physical suffering. But what we are asking is for God not to be distant, but to be close. Look at verse 21. Do not forsake me, O Lord. That's what sin does. It puts distance between us and God. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. Sin severs us relationally from God. You cannot lose your salvation. But it does sever us relationally. So when we as believers talk about uh, confessing and cleansing, we're not talking about being saved again or the fact that our sins weren't paid for when Jesus died on the cross. All our sins were paid for. What we're talking about is that restoration of fellowship, this distance that sin places between us and God. Zechariah in Zechariah chapter 1, 3, he says this, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me. This is a prophet. Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. And it seems like James actually borrows Zechariah's wording in James 4, 8 to 10. Listen to what he says. Draw near to God. He's speaking to believers. And He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. He's simply using terms for confession. As Jesus would say, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Comforted in what? In your sin. Because you're turning from it and you're mourning over it. You are exceedingly sorrowful for it. Be wretched and mourn and weep, James says. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. So at the bottom of David's sort of personal resources as a king, at the bottom of his hope, he recognizes that God is synonymous with salvation. Look at the last verse. Remember, this is the one who was piercing with arrows, the source of the psalmist's rebuke. He is now, O Lord, my salvation. That's what happens through this progression in Psalm 38. He has become for David Savior. In Mark chapter 2, 3 to 4, uh, there is a picture, and I love several of the pictures that, that Mark includes. You, you have lepers, Jesus moving towards this, this leprosy, which is a picture in the New Testament often of sin, and it is deteriorating the flesh, and it has created social distance between him and the rest of the community. They're far out, and what does Jesus do? Jesus doesn't just yell at him from afar, but he moves forward and he does what? And he touches him and he heals him. And it's not just about the, the, the restoration of, of sort of that deteriorating flesh. It's the restoration of his soul. It's about sin. There's another picture in Mark 2 that says this, that they came, four friends came bringing a paralytic to Jesus. It says, they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men, and when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they're in a house. This is during the popular years of Jesus' ministry. They went upstairs, usually in, in these older homes uh, in Israel, there was an external stair go, that went up to a flat rooftop. It says, when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, and just, just picture that, if you could sort of condense this down, put a flat roof over us, Jesus is teaching. The crowds are all gathered in. You hear the steps, maybe. Maybe you don't. 
But what you do see is all of a sudden the piece of roof starts to be removed while Jesus is teaching. They removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Right? You trust, I guess you trust your friends at that moment. And I don't know if, if it's Peter's house and he left fishing gear up there and there's rope and they're descending, but somehow they created something so that here comes, in the middle of the sermon, comes down this man on a pallet. Wouldn't that be distracting? Wouldn't it be great if we could have rigged that this morning? And I wouldn't even warn you. And all of a sudden, here comes somebody down on this pallet. Right. So at this point, even though the teacher is Jesus, where's the focus? Obviously, it's on the man descending from the rooftop. And there's some people in the crowd that are thinking, I hope they don't let go of the ropes. And does that, is that guy even strong enough to hold his side? You know, all these human perspectives. But here comes this man. They let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. So I don't know what Jesus was teaching at that point, but there he sits right in front of Jesus and the crowd looking on. Listen to what the the narrative of Mark says. Mark says this. And when Jesus saw their faith, the first reference to faith in Mark's account of the gospel is not an emotion or a feeling. It's an action. He saw their faith. And listen to the first thing he says to this man on the pallet. Son, very endearing term. Also one of authority. Son, your sins are forgiven. See, Jesus knew why they brought him. Jesus knew the greater need of the man's heart. But the crowd contained antagonistic observers. Listen to this. Right after he says, your sins are forgiven, it says, now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Let me ask you, are they right or wrong? They're right. They're wrong in their conclusion about who Jesus is, but they're right. Nobody can forgive. That's a prerogative that God alone gets. This man, God alone. See, religious men, educated men, men of stature in the community, and and here's the contrast, are spiritually paralyzed. They don't see the truth about Jesus. Verse 8, And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, they didn't say it out loud, but he knew what they were thinking. He said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. Which is easier to say? Well, which is easier for me to say right now that that I can if I step back and pray hard enough, if I if I run and get a good jump, I can fly. Or is it actually easier to do that? It's easier to say it, right? It's easier for a boy to say he's the fastest runner at his school. And maybe that's true right now if you're homeschooled, right? And you're the only boy in your home. That would be a true statement. But what if you went to a large public school and you made that statement that you're the fastest kid and you're going to have to prove it with other people that are running track? So which which is easier to say it or to prove it? To prove it. So which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise, take up your bed and you can go home. 
It's easier to say your sins are forgiven. And I love what Jesus does here. But that you may know, verse 10, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Herbert Lockyer said this, the fatal weakness of a religious leader like Muhammad and one of which he was acutely aware was that he could show no miracles attesting the divinity of his mission. Here you have a miracle being displayed right before these people in verse 12. And the paralytic rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. Remember what Jesus has done. He's healed people that were blind from birth, crippled legs, withered hands, and he raised people from the dead. Why? To prove something. And this will connect back into Psalm 38. When we are suffering, when we are confessing, we are crying out and waiting on the one who can what? Forgive sin. Cleanse sin. Remove the chastening heavy hand. Here is the beauty of the gospel and really the distinctive message of Christianity. 1 John 1.9 If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, that picture of dirt and filth, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That verse came to mind after I'd crushed my foot and I was in a cast of some making for more than six weeks. And the day I was actually able to remove that cast, and you know what a leg or a member looks like after it's been in the cast. The flesh is all rotten and foul. And I remember just sitting in the hot bath and seeing the flesh come off. And I know, nasty, nasty picture right before coffee connect time. But I remember seeing all this deadness float and I thought about, this is a very accurate picture of sin. I remember draining the water and running new water and that cleansing. By the time it was done, the leg was clean and fresh. Still looked funny and small, but it was clean. Do you know what, and you know what God's goodness is? When He lets you see the filthiness, the uncleanness of your sin. And sometimes He does that through suffering. It was C.S. Lewis who said that God, God whispers to us in our pleasure and speaks to our conscience but He yells in our pain. So we turn back to Him and we look to Him and we know that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His Word is not in us. That's like resisting confession. Confession is agreeing with God about our sin. 1 John 2.1 My little children, He's talking to believers. I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, believers, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. He's removed the wrath of God, the heavy hand of God, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. I'm going to invite our music team forward. Well, they come forward. I just want to turn your attention back to the last two verses of Psalm 38. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. 
If you're under God's heavy hand this morning, you can wait on Him in stillness and look to Him, confessing your sin, knowing that He will forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We have an advocate. We have someone who stands between us and the Father, and it is Jesus Christ, the righteous. Let's pray.